because sin matters, because God matters, and people's matter. Right? If I do something wrong to you, and God just says, don't worry about it, uh, that's actually saying that you don't matter. Uh, but you do matter. Uh, and if I do something wrong and I don't treat God, and I don't treat you properly, that's a, that's a bad thing. And if I don't treat you properly, that's a bad thing. And if I don't treat God properly, that's a bad thing. Uh, because God matters. Uh, and so, um, because people matter, and even more importantly, because God matters, then sin matters. Uh, and sin must be dealt with justly. Um, the fact that God... Um, forgives at all, that's the amazing, amazing thing. Uh, and the way that God forgives, uh, while at the same time uh, as saying that sin does matter, uh, is through the death of his son, uh, taking that sin upon himself. Uh, and that sin is punished, and God is shown to be righteous. He's shown to be just. Uh, and that, that's, that God's righteousness uh, is revealed uh, in his justice and mercy uh, shown together. Uh, at the cross. And that, that mixes together with the second question, which is, why does God demand a payment for human sin when he tells or preaches us not to hold grudges uh, and repay evil or revenge? Well, exactly the same thing, isn't it? If I don't take... Um, if you do something wrong to me uh, and I don't take revenge, that means at one level I'm bearing it. Uh, and when God forgives... Uh, and he's not, um, uh, and he's, uh, and he's, um, uh, w- w- when God is forgiving, he's bearing it. Uh, and the way he bears it uh, is in the death of his son. Uh, the second thing is actually when he does tell us uh, not to repay evil for evil, uh, that is also because in the end, actually, he does bring judgment. Uh, if I do something wrong to you, that is still important, and that still has to be dealt with. Either God will deal with it on the day of judgment, and I will pay for that, or Jesus will bear it for me uh, and take my punishment for me. Either way, God is not saying that what I did to you is not important by telling me not to take revenge on you. I don't take revenge on you because I leave room for the judgment of God. Uh, That's what God's telling us. Uh, the next question is chapter 3, verse 23. So if you've got your Bibles there, it's page 941. It's a very good question. It actually came up in our group um, where it says, remember, all have sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then chapter three twenty four, and in brackets the person's put all are justified. Uh, similarly, uh, 5.18, through one man all sin, many, not all, will be made righteous. Um, I think what you've got to do, and therefore this is the argument (coughs) of universalism, that is that we are all sinful and fall short of God's glory, but we are all justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now what what that omits, and that's a very good question, but if you look at everything around, Paul is not contradicting himself, obviously. He's not here arguing that every... He is arguing that we are all condemned. He's just spent the first three chapters doing that, and that's why verse 23 is a good summary of those first three chapters. But he is not arguing that all are justified. In fact, verse 22 tells you uh, that justification comes through faith to Jesus Christ for all who believe. And verse 25, the very next verse, tells us 
that it's only propitiation by his blood, which is to be received by faith. So all those uh, are right with God are those who come by faith or belief. So I think you've got to put it into that context. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption by his blood to be received by faith. So in other words, remember that in the 13th century, the chapter divisions were added. In the 16th century or 15th century, the verse divisions were added. So you've just got to keep reading as we break them up into chapters and verses. But it wasn't Tertius didn't write like that, he just wrote. And therefore you, you see that verse 24 really is to be um, uh, read in its context. That's why context is vital. And the, the same sentence continues, and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in by his blood to be received by faith. So it's obvious that those who receive the, uh, by faith in his blood uh, are those who are therefore uh, justified. Um, it's those who believe. Um, that, so the next question I have here is the will of God is very wide. And I take it that this uh, is a reference to Romans chapter 12, testing what may be, what you may discern, what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. What exactly is God's will? Well, exactly, God's will is that you stand in right relationship with him and uh, you live that out. Um, and that means non-conformity with the world and transformation by the renewing of your mind. And in your various decisions of life, you'll, Paul says here, we talked about this in our group as well, what does it mean, testing? Well, all of a sudden you've got a mind that is capable and able to make proper moral judgments, so you test them. And we used the example of you might have two job options and one which pays much more money and in the old, with your old brain, you might have not seen past that. You would have just gone for that because it pays much more money. But now you've got a new brain and you're able to test and discern what God's will, good, acceptable and perfect will. You say, well, no, just because, that's one factor. It pays more money that I can therefore give away, but it will also... Uh, consume me and draw me in ambitious ways which are contrary to the gospel or make me unavailable for service to other, to other believers or service to the world or service to the church. So I won't go that way. So you're able to test and approve this is God's good will and I've got a mind that's able to discern God's good, perfect will. And so put it to the test. And when you're facing decisions, ask yourself which is the one which is going to be honouring to God and recognises his goodwill in things. And I think in the various decisions of life, that's what you're, which church should I go to? What job should I do? Who should I marry? All those sorts of things. Use the brain that God has renewed and given you. And that's a new experience when you come to Christ because all of a sudden you've got a new way of thinking. Okay, what are some steps that we can take in the renewing of our mind? Well, I think um, uh, develop your thinking, develop your mind, treat your mind as precious. Uh, it is a precious thing, isn't it? Because it's brand new. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit has come into your mind and given you into your life and given you a whole new way of thinking. So develop that. Uh, develop it by reading the Word. Develop it by... Um, by uh, oh, one example, um, 
there's a lady at where we go to church in London at St Helens. She's the she used to be the office receptionist, and one day she came back from lunch, and I saw her put a book in her bag that she'd been reading. And I said, Janet, what have you been reading? She pulled out the book and showed me that on the inside cover, Dear Janet, from Don with love. Don is her husband. And uh, here she's an elderly lady. She's a receptionist at the church. And this was 1988 and she ticked it. Christmas 1988 ticked. And then underneath that, 2001 ticked. And now underneath that, 2012, not yet ticked. She was now reading this book for the third time. It's a book of 500 pages. It's a book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. Now she is feeding her mind. She is sharpening her theological mind, her thinking. And I think by reading substantial material like that, a good theological tome, a good basic theological book, is really good for us. It's just respecting the mind that God has given me and it's feeding that mind on good stuff. And I tell you what, it's better to feed on that than the latest magazine that comes out about what's happening in Hollywood. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. There's a follow-up question from that. How do we then understand faith in measure of, um, in light of Romans 12, chapter, uh, verse 3? So it says here, um, for by gra- the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Well, I take it that that's a way, speaking about the measure of faith, that is the content of giftedness which God has given to him. I take that there. Do you, is that the way you see it? I follow. Yeah. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That is, for the exercise of that particular area of giftedness. Yeah. Uh, so, is that, uh, so it's different from people to people, person to person? Different measures of faith according to yes. whatever their giftedness is, yeah. Okay. Um, I've got a question here. Yeah. Do you want me just to keep going? Yeah, Are keep going. Right? Okay. I've got a question that simply says, law and grace, question mark. Please comment. <laughs> We're under grace, not law. Um, and that means that if you try and deserve or earn grace, it's no longer grace because grace earned is no longer grace. Grace is favour to those who don't deserve it, um, kindness to those who don't deserve it, God's favour to those who don't deserve it. We live by grace. Uh, we live in the realm of grace. God never... Uh, relates to me on the basis of him owing me. So I've earned this, now you do this. It's never that way. It's always that I'm indebted to his grace. Um, And I don't deserve what God is doing. And when I ask for blessing, I don't deserve it. It's not a right. Um, Now, And that's the way we live. And it seems to me that we never, the Apostle Paul never says we live by law. We live always by grace. And the Holy Spirit, therefore, keeps driving us back to the cross of Jesus. So it means that my life as a Christian is now not law-regulated, but it's spirit-directed. And the Spirit's always driving me back to the pattern of our Lord Jesus, primarily at the cross. So Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, what place, therefore, does the law have? 
the, let's, let's talk about the moral law, the, the Ten Commandments. The moral law is good because it's God's. It's God's standard. It's holy, righteous and good. It helps me identify what sin is. So sin is theft, for example. Sin is slander. It's contrary to the will of God. It always is. Um, and it identifies me as a sinner so that when I do those things, I'm in need of forgiveness, etc., um, the law, Paul says in Galatians, was a schoolmaster. It was pointing me forward to Christ. I was under law. I was accused by the law because I couldn't do it. But it delivered me to Christ because uh, one, one Puritan writer said, the law is the perfect, it is the perfect storm which wrecks our hopes of self-salvation and drives us on the rock of all ages to Jesus. That's what the law does. I need redemption. I need someone to save me. The law can't do it. And the Lord does that. And when I come to Christ, I'm forgiven and I receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is driving me back to the pattern of Jesus. So it's like this as I see it and I think this is, well, I know this is not original to me, but I found this very helpful, that if you look at the four Ps, the alliterated P, uh, if you look at the Old Covenant, the purpose of the Old Covenant was the glory of God. The uh, principle of the Old Covenant was that love God and love your neighbour. The pattern of living the old covenant was non-existent because no one lived it perfectly and the power to live it was non-existent as well. When you come to the new covenant, the purpose of the new covenant is the glory of God. The uh, principle of the new covenant is love God and love your neighbour. Um, the pattern of living the new, in the new covenant is Jesus. Jesus lives perfectly and the power to live that way for you and me is the Holy Spirit who drives us back to the pattern of Jesus. Now, does that mean that the Ten Commandments are to be rejected, no longer relevant? Yes and no, because I'm not redeemed from Egypt and therefore they don't apply to me. God says, I've redeemed you from Israel, therefore live this way, but he hasn't redeemed me from Israel. However, because it's God's moral order, it all points forward and you can find equivalents in the New Covenant ethical exhortations, which are also always based in their redemptive environment, to all of those in the Ten Commandments. So don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't slander, don't gossip, all have equivalents in the New Testament. So I'm not saying set those aside. Um, but the one that doesn't is the Sabbath day, the Fourth Commandment. Now that is why in Sydney... The Seventh-day Adventists are doing so well, particularly amongst Chinese people. Because Chinese people, it seems to me, well, you know, if you're Chinese, you like to tick off things, tick, 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 lists. Okay, how can I please God ten ways? Tick, 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 four, the fourth way. Oh, the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath. Well, how can I do that? See, so, so we've got to understand that the Sabbath, the law is pointing forward. And, of course, Jesus is our Sabbath rest, according to Hebrews um, and the Christians met on the first day of the week, etc. And then Paul's arguing in Colossians and in that passage today, don't argue about this day is more fitting than that day, etc. So there's no objective right or wrong when it comes to the day. So I think we've got to keep on our feet about that. And we, when we need very carefully, if we're doing a series on the Ten Commandments, to take them through to the New Covenant exhortations, which is the fruit of our redemption in the Lord Jesus. Yeah. Thank you, David. Can can take questions from the floor? Uh, one question. Okay. Yeah, um, so the 
Oh, yes, there'll always be that. But I, and, and I don't know much about your, your governing authority here in Malaysia, but I can think of a lot of nations on earth that have got worse, I think, than you guys have got. Um, so uh, there will be a point where you say thus far and no further, and hopefully there'll be a big enough group of you who say that uh, so that you're not one out. So that once, for example, um, it is imposed on us to, uh, to act contrary to the clear will of God, hopefully all pastors will turn up to the police station and say, right, well, here we are. Um, so I've just given you one example of marriage ceremonies. I don't know how marriage works here. Do people get married in churches here? They do. Mm. I think in, in Malaysia, one of the things that we... Uh, mics are not very good in Malaysia. Okay, okay now. Yeah. I think one of the things that we, we have to keep on... Uh, can I stop you? I'll start with David. We work under a uh, constitutional... Uh, situation in Malaysia, uh, and so the constitution uh, constitutes the uh, the uh, the governing authority. All right, so it doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything a particular ruling party does. Uh, you're working under the constitution. Uh, we still we still su- we submit to those in authority, uh, and we respect those in authority. And sometimes Christians have been so good on the respect bit, I think, uh, and sometimes we 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 we, we find that difficult. Um, uh, uh, but it's a constitutional thing. So it doesn't mean you have to agree. You've you, you got, you, you got constitutional ways of disagreeing uh, without, um, uh, without going against the command of Romans, Romans 13. Um, the place, uh, and so you obey the law. Uh, and what the law is the law, you, you obey the law, um, even if you don't agree with the law. Okay, um, thank you. And that's... I'll close the uh, Q&A.